I invite you to take your Bibles, and if you will, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Our text for the morning comes from Matthew chapter 22, and I'll begin reading at verse 34. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? God, give us ears to hear. Not what we think our neighbor needs to hear today, but what we need to hear today. We give you thanks for the presence of the living Christ among us. Draw forth from each one of us the best worship that we can offer. And give us ears to hear what you're saying to us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, it really does not make any sense to sing what the world needs now is love, sweet love, if we don't know what love is. Our culture talks about love a great, great deal. It really is an overused word in our culture. You know, we can love a particular food, we can love a particular sports team, we can love our spouse, we can love God. Love is a very overused word in our culture. It is important, if we're going to use the word love, to, to take time to define the word love. And particularly those of us in the Jewish or the Christian tradition, we want to go to the book, the Bible, and see how the Bible defines love. Because the culture around us uses the word almost as often as we do, but people rarely ever pause to define love. So for a few Sundays here at the beginning of February, uh, Pastor Clark and I will be teaching a sermon series that we have entitled, Love Is. And we're going to be talking about what love is. And we're going to be talking about what love looks like. This text before us this morning is among some of the most familiar words Jesus spoke. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, probably as an 18th century Anglican, heard these words almost every Sunday in the Anglican communion service because frequently these words were read as part of reminding themselves of the law of God. And frequently when we think about the law of God, what God wants of us, the yeses and the noes, that we find in the Bible, in the will of God, this passage comes to mind. We are going to look this morning only at 
the first of the two commandments where Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. So obviously when Jesus said that, Jesus, by implication, is saying what the Scriptures tell us over and over again in different ways, that love is more something you do than something you feel. Now, in this culture, it tends to be something we feel. But particularly in the Bible, in the Jewish and the Christian tradition, love is something you do. That's why Jesus can say, you shall love. You shall love. You can make the decision to love. You can make the choice to love. It's not dependent upon whatever feeling we may have at a particular moment. We are just looking at the first of these two commandments today. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Some contemporary translations uh, offered in a fresh translation. Uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message says, Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. The Passion Paraphrase translates it this way, Love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being, and with every thought that is within you. Love is something we do, not something we feel. And obviously what Jesus is saying here, when he commands us to love, you shall love the Lord your God. He's commanding us to love the Lord our God with everything we are, with everything that we have. The Bible rarely ever gets close to defining love. Usually the Bible just displays love to us pictures love for us in tremendous ways from Genesis to the book of Revelation. But the Bible assumes that perhaps we just know what love is, how we would define love. And I guess if I, if I need to define love from a Jewish Christian perspective, I would define love as seeking, seeking the highest good of the other, seeking the highest welfare of the other. And I can do that regardless of how I feel about the other. Now, if I have strong emotional attachment and fondness for the other, that will obviously help me to love the other as I seek the highest good for the other, seek the highest welfare of the other. That's why we can love people that we don't even particularly like. We can seek their highest good. We can seek their highest welfare. That is a definition, if you want a definition for love. Uh, that is something we do. That, that is a way we treat people. We give them not what they want. We give them what they need. We tell them not what they want to hear, but we tell them what they need to hear because we're seeking the other's highest good, the other's highest welfare. So that is a definition of love. But as I said, the Bible tends to just display love for us. So when we talk about loving God with all that we are, we need to remind ourselves of several things if we're going to live a life of love toward God. To love God obviously means that we have to, we have to know God. 
it's hard to love somebody that you're in no relationship with. Uh, you have to know the person. You have to recognize the person. You have to make a decision to love that person. In order to love God and to love God well, we have to know God. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 46. It's a great psalm. It's a great profession of faith in the midst of trials. And one of the other reasons I love Psalm 46, though it's a profession of faith that the psalmist makes in the midst of a great trial, about two-thirds of the way through the psalm, God shows up. God inserts his voice into the voice of the psalmist. And you remember what it was that God says there in Psalm 46, verse 10. God shows up and God says, be still and know that I am God. The Hebrew can be translated, cease striving. Stop, be still, and know that I am God. If we're going to love God, we obviously have to know God. And in the Jewish and the Christian tradition, the way we know God is through the book. God is so other than us. God is so transcendent beyond us. If God did not graciously and kindly seek to reveal God's self to us, we would not know God well. You know, reason will get us a certain distance toward God, but like Dante says in the Divine Comedy, reason has short wings. Reason has some wings, but they're short. They can only do part of the task. I mean, we can go out here in nature, and nature can help us understand that there is a creator, but there's nothing in nature that will tell you that God has become incarnate in Jesus Christ, and God in Jesus Christ has died for you, has died for me, so that we can be forgiven of our sins and find the power of living life in His presence. Nothing in nature, nothing in reason will tell us that. That's why in the Jewish and the Christian faith, we say that primarily the way God reveals God's self to us is through the Holy Scriptures. This is where we learn the nature of God, the character of God. This is where we know, we learn what God wants us to know. We, we learn what God's will is, what God's permissive will is, what God's perfect will is, what God will allow and what God desires. We learn that not in nature or through reason or observation or through emotional attachment. We learn that from this book. That's why Judaism and Christianity, compared to some of the other world religions, is a text-based religion. When we worship, whether we're Jewish or Christian, when we worship, this book is read. This book is central to our worship experience. We're a text-based religion. If we're going to love God, we've got to know God. We know God through God's written word. We know God supremely through his living word. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God for us. If you want to know what God wants, if you want to know what God wishes, if you want to know how God feels about anything, look at Jesus. So through the Word and the living Word, we, we come to know God. In order to love God, we've got to know God. In order to love God, we, we must desire God first and foremost in our lives. 
Psalm 42 begins with those beautiful words, As a deer pants for water, so pants my soul for you, O God. One of the most significant prayers any of us can pray is a prayer that God will give us the gift of a greater thirst for God. May God birth in each one of us an overwhelming desire to know Him better, to have more of Him in our life, and to be more completely abandoned to His will and His wishes for our life. If we want to love God, we have to know God. If we want to love God, we have to, we have to desire God. If we want to love God, we have to put God first in our life. Particularly in the Hebrew way of thinking, to love God means to put God first in our life. We put God first by worshiping God and God alone. One of the things we know about human nature is that all human beings, by nature, we are worshipers. We all worship something. We all worship somebody. We all worship some ideal or some attitude. We all worship something. It was John Calvin who's back there in our back window. It was John Calvin who one time famously said, the human heart is an idol-making machine because we're made to worship. We have somebody, something that we worship. Jesus made it clear we cannot serve two masters. And we have to worship God and worship God alone. This is where the Bible reminds us that God is a jealous God. God will not share this place with any other being or any other idea or ideal. We have to worship God and worship Him alone. In other words, we have to have our priorities right. And that's hard work. It's hard work for all of us to set the correct priorities and then to live our life according to the correct priorities. Last week, Tammy and I were at an amazing C.S. Lewis conference down in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Becky and Quentin were there with us, an amazing conference. It ended up being what we think in, to be the largest C.S. Lewis conference in history. Uh, the Charleston Music uh, Hall only held 800 people, so they had to cut off the registration at 800 people. It was a, a great delight to me to see these people coming from around the United States to again study C.S. Lewis, the greatest defender of the Orthodox Christian faith in the 20th century. Uh, obviously, I commend all of his writings to you. He wrote many essays. One of his essays that has extreme practical ramifications, an essay he wrote entitled, uh, first and second things. First and second things. The point of that essay is we've got to know what's first and we've got to know what's second. We've got to know what's third. We've got to know what's fourth. We've got to know what's fifth. We've got to determine what is first and make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. And obviously God should be first. Uh, St. Augustine speaks about ordering our loves appropriately. We all have multitude of loves, and that's really the only word we have in the English. So we can love a special food, we can love a sports team, we can love our spouse, we can love God. We have a multitude of loves, but it was St. Augustine of Hippo who said we need to rightly order our loves. Make sure number one's number one. Number two is number two. Number three is number three. And that's a daily task. 
have a have I told you about my new granddaughters lately? They are six and seven months old now. Um, they're six and seven months old, and they're growing, they're developing their personality. And, and I know that your grandchildren, if you have grandchildren, are beautiful, but my two are the most beautiful in the world. And they're learning to, they're just getting that point where they're learning to crawl. And, you know, they're a great, great joy to, to mine and Tammy's life. But every time I see my beautiful granddaughters, Nora and Molly, I'm reminded that the most important thing I can do for them, the most loving thing I can do for them, is to keep God first in my life. They're up there on the list, but I've got to keep God first in my life. If I put them first in my life, I'd do them a great disservice. It's only by keeping God first in my life that I can be the the grandfather that they need me to be. So we have got to learn how to set priorities and focus on priorities. I know life happens, and sometimes we just take care of the urgent, and we have to ignore the important things in life. That's why we have to work hard to keep God first in our life. One of the verses, and you've heard me say this before, one of the verses that God used to uh, get me to surrender to the concept of full-time Christian ministry 40 years ago is a verse from the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this other stuff will be added to you in appropriate ways. Seek ye first. Chase hard after God. Make that first. And then everything else in life will fall into place. So if we want to love God, a life of loving God is based on knowing God, desiring God, putting God first in our life, and doing everything we can daily to keep God first in our life. And then obviously we have to obey God. You know, we, we obey God not to merit anything from God. We obey God because we love God. God has given us so much, especially in Jesus Christ. That's why salvation is grace, but my life is gratitude in response to all that God has given me. So we, we do have to obey God because we want to obey God. If God's first in our life, we want to obey God. Um, you heard Jesus say at the end of the text for the morning that on these two commandments, he gives the lawyer two commandments, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He says these two commandments summarize all the laws of Moses. There are 613 laws in the Hebrew Bible. Jesus fulfilled the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law still stands. Jesus um, wants us to fulfill the law of God. And what he says here in this text is the way we fulfill the law of God is to do these two commandments. And he says all the law, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Some people think he gives the lawyer two commandments because he's, he's painting a picture in a different way of what we sometimes call the 
Ten Commandments. The world prefers to think of them as, as ten suggestions, but we call them the Ten Commandments. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, notice how they're given. It starts off talking about our relationship to God. So maybe we, we love God when we understand that you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make unto thee any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's part of loving God. But you can't separate loving God from loving others. So the second, what we call the second table of the law, where we love our neighbors, includes honor your father and your mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Those are some of the no's that God brings to us. If you want the positive statement, we should, we should treat others as we want to be treated. The golden rule. Jesus says if, if we do these commandments that he mentions here, We'll be fulfilling all of the law and the prophets. You notice here in this text, it's fascinating. The lawyer, and by the way, lawyer in first century Judaism means a teacher of the law of God, because those are the only laws they had. So a lawyer was a religious leader, taught the law of God. So here in the text, the, the lawyer asked which commandment in the law is the greatest. The lawyer asks for one commandment. You notice what Jesus does. Jesus gives them two. Because in Jesus' mind, they're inseparable. We have, to, we have to know God. We have to desire God. We have to put God first in our life. And if we want to love God, we love God by loving our neighbors. And our neighbors are not just people in our neighborhood who are like us, but our neighbors are those people in need that we encounter, so we need to do love toward them. It's two sides of the same coin. We love God by loving our neighbor. We don't just love God by, by working up great emotional feelings toward God. We objectively love God by loving on our neighbor. Love is something we do. It's not something we feel. We can do it regardless of our feelings. Now, it is a great day when our feelings help us to love the people that God gives us to love. But some days our, our feelings, our emotions don't support us in loving the people that God has given us to love. And we still need to choose love even on those days. I really am a fan of emotions. Emotions are a great gift that God has given to us. But we need to understand that emotion does not, cannot create love. But when we choose love, when we choose the love lifestyle, emotions will come. Sometimes they're painful emotions because, you know, to love someone means you may lose that person. There will be emotions that will come as we love. Sometimes there will be emotions that will come that will help us to love that person. So the emotions may come, but it's not the emotions that are primary. It's not the emotions that bring the love. A.W. Tozer one time said, Flowers and birdsong do not make spring, 
But when spring comes, they come with it. So to love God means to follow wherever he leads. To love God means to obey whatever he asks. To love God means to trust him in the midst of any trial. You know, throughout our history, there have been people more than we imagine, more than we know, who have so loved God that they have given their physical lives out of love for God. Those martyrs, those people who have died for their faith, they have been sprinkled throughout our Christian history. More martyrs were created in the 20th century than any other Christian century. And the 21st century continues to make myriads upon myriads of martyrs for Jesus Christ. I think about people like the, the Apostle Paul. He was martyred because he was a Roman citizen. He was beheaded. I think about the Apostle Peter. Peter was not a Roman citizen. He was a Galilean fisherman, so he was crucified by the Romans. But he said that he was not worthy to be crucified the same way his Lord was crucified, so he asked to be crucified upside down. I think about the people who so have loved God that they gave their very physical lives for the love of God. But I'm also mindful that sometimes it's harder not to die for Christ, but to live for Christ. Death can come quickly. Death can come rapidly. But to, to live for Christ is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day decision. And sometimes it's harder to live for Christ than it is to die for Christ. We are being called to live for Christ. To live a life of love toward our Lord. The world won't understand us. The world won't always appreciate us. The world will sometimes be hostile toward us. But we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And we have to live a life of love toward God. I th you've heard me say before, I think, a few months ago, that I believe at the judgment, when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be there because of grace. We will be there because of the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. But we will have to face the judgment seat of Christ, we will be asked what we did with our life in this world, how we served Christ in this world. And I, I've said before that I think when we stand before the judgment seat, he may ask each one of us, where are our scars? And I'm sure many of us say, well, Jesus, what, what do you mean, where are our scars? And Jesus may respond, where are your scars? Was there not something worth suffering for in your life? May we be so overwhelmed with love for our Lord that life in this world and life in the world to come will be all about Him.